Hello everybody, Andy Leh here with something special to hold you down till the next couple of flagship African Tech Roundup episodes drop in the coming weeks. We're working on a few surprises that I'm pretty sure you'll find rather dope. But in the meantime, after hosting a live panel session at LeaderX 2019 in Santa and Johannesburg themed Accelerating Zimbabwean Entrepreneurial Ventures, I sat Zimbabwean businessman and presidential advisor Dr. Shingi Munyeza and South African entrepreneur and investor Alan Reyes down for a relaxed podcast taping. And by the way, side note, shout out to those of you who made it out for the event in September. A very big thank you to Zimbabwe Investment Tours and of course the University of Reading's Henley Business School Africa for partnering with us to put the event together. So Dr. Shingi Munyeza. Before he made his mark as an entrepreneur, well, he built a storied corporate career that saw him grow from being a clerk at Ernst & Young at the age of 20 to being a heavy-hitting advertising industry executive and eventually, and perhaps most famously, becoming the CEO of African Sun, which is one of Zimbabwe's leading hospitality groups. And now, Dr. Munyeza has since evolved into one of his country's most respected serial entrepreneurs, and on this podcast, he shares his motivation for joining forces with none other than Alon Reyes to launch a business incubator in Zimbabwe. Now, Alon Reyes has come to be regarded globally as a pioneer and maverick in the business incubation industry. It's an industry which is, for the most part, notorious for being anything but pragmatic and profitable. Now, Alon is the CEO of RaiseCorp, and uh, RaiseCorp has provocatively been dubbed by The Economist as, quote, the only genuine incubator in Africa. Yep, that's what they said. So now I'm sure you can tell by that introduction that this is not an episode to miss. Thank you so much for tuning in. Do listen in for exclusive insight regarding both Dr. Shinge Munyeza and Alon Razor's decidedly different entrepreneurial approaches. And get your notebook out because there'll be plenty of practical wisdom on backing early stage entrepreneurial progress in Zimbabwe. And uh, of course, how Dr. Shingi and Alon are planning to do just that via Raise Corp Zimbabwe. Enjoy. I run a business called Raise Corp. And Raise Corp is a 19 year old business that supports entrepreneurs. We have had 13,000 entrepreneurs graduate through RaiseCorp. We're currently looking after 500 businesses. Our theory of change is we find the best, give them the best, and produce the best. So by finding the best, we get 50 to 100 applications a day to join RaiseCorp. And of those, one in 100 will get into, into RaiseCorp. We've got a very strict selection process, and nowhere in that process do we ever look at a business plan. We look at what we call Blue Heart, that ability to stand up again and again, that fighting spirit. Over the last 19 years, we've become very good at that selection process. Then we move to give them the best, which is our model, and we call our model a prosperator model, not an incubator model. And it's a very, very hands-on programmatic model, which takes entrepreneurs through a process in order to become successful. And then produce the best is our results. We've got a full efficacy department. We measure everything. And currently we're sitting at an average of 41% growth on top line for our entrepreneurs and 238% bottom line growth on average in, in there. Of course, there are outsiders on either side. Uh, we, we do fail, but we succeed way more than we fail. So effectively, what happens if an entrepreneur is at whatever stage in their journey, they come to us, we select them, 
we put them on the right program and we accelerate their success. Well, for me, an entrepreneur, I am a philanthropist, but I'm also a pastor. I have partnered with Alon to establish Race Corp in Zimbabwe in the manner that he has described. So I'm his partner there. But I'm also into the digital space, cloud computing, big data. Uh, we have a small fintech company that we've launched at the beginning of the year, which is looking at removing all the cash transaction platforms in, that's left in Zimbabwe. As you might know that in Zimbabwe, it's 96% now electronic transfers. So we're removing that. That is mainly in ticketing and in transport and public transport. So we have a, a platform that we're launching right now. And then uh, we are in solar. Uh, this we're doing industrial and commercial installation on rooftops, uh, ground mount and car parks just to ease the uh, power situation that we are finding or the intervention we're finding in Zimbabwe, uh, seeing that uh, energy and power has, has become a crisis. Uh, so we're working uh, in partnership with a few guys that are there uh, in bringing in solar into commerce and industry. The other one is e-commerce, a platform that we call Cashback Point, uh, which was launched in the UK. And it's a discount card which uses the mode of transaction as your discount point. Uh, we've just launched it with the biggest um, fintech company in Zimbabwe, Echo Cash, and we are rolling it out with the other banks. Uh, we've got five banks lined up right now, uh, which we'll be launching with. So basically, I'm in about five sectors of the economy in terms of the businesses I run or I involved in. Uh, the most exciting one is the, uh, the incubator that I am working with Alan on because that's part of my legacy. There's this notion of serial entrepreneurship that is you know, widely peddled in the world today. I think most of those stereotypes apply to the way you've navigated the world, Shingi. And in many respects, those stereotypes don't relate to how you have approached your entrepreneurial journey, Elon. Can you guys dip into your experience to, to flesh that out a bit? I've got a very successful friend who is a serial entrepreneur and he has gone into businesses, timed it well in and timed it well out and made a lot of money. So I think before we, we sort of talk with the difference between serial entrepreneur and maybe a strategic entrepreneur, which maybe is the label for me, is I don't think one is better than the other, it just might suit certain circumstances better than, than others. I'm a quite a sentimental guy and uh, and so the first business I got involved with 19 years ago is still my partner today that I backed 19 years ago. I'm about relationships and, and, and building equity in the long term. Sometimes that's not a good thing because you can time that wrong. But effectively the way that I work is this. I have a broad strategy. I have a, an overarching strategy and then a sub-strategy or two sub-strategies within that that make up the broad strategy. And... When I start to think about which business to invest in next, it's like a puzzle piece. It has to fit that broader strategy. So I'm very clear if, uh, as to what that strategy is. And then I basically look at this particular piece of which is a, a new business or a new sector or new whatever and say, where does that fit in the broader strategy? If it doesn't fit, then I walk away from it. And I get around 50 people a, m a month on average applying for us to take equity in their businesses. 
as as I said on stage with you, I, well, if I do two deals a year, I'm happy because it has to be the right fit for the broader strategy. So it makes it quite easy to actually make investment decisions because if the business doesn't fit one of those pieces, well, then it's a thank you for applying, but um, I'm not the right partner for you. And so, Shingi, you have a prolific track record of timing entrees and exits in different sectors throughout your career post being in corporate. What makes Zimbabwe the perfect place to exercise that genre of entrepreneurship? Maybe give us an example of how you'd have exercised that approach in a, in a market like Zimbabwe. I fully concur with his positioning that there's no one better model of entrepreneurship to the other. It, it depends on the circumstances, but it also d- depends on the individual's gifts and uh, how they are wired uh, to deal with entrepreneurship. So in Zimbabwe, my journey has been both the way I'm wired, but also the environment that I find myself in. I'm more of a pioneering, visionary entrepreneur. I start businesses, I incubate them, and I sell them off or exit them. This is why my partnership with Alon is very crucial. And for me, the joy is in all of that. So it's starting them, it's, it's getting them going, but it's also being able to say goodbye to them. And that's always very difficult for the other type of entrepreneurs to say goodbye to a baby you have loved for so long. But I also think that I can do that up to a certain point in my life. I think I'm getting a little bit older, so I don't have the same energies I used to have 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So my ability and my, uh, my desire to get in and get out is getting less and less. So I'm zeroing in on what I think will mimic that getting in and out, which is the incubator model. Because it allows me to see young businesses or small businesses grow and see them go, but still seeing the same cycle coming up again, but without me exiting the incubator as it were. So that's probably where I'm getting to. But Zim has had seasons of good businesses and bad businesses because of the environment. So in one season, tourism was booming. In another season, mining would have been booming. In another season, farming would have been booming. So you have to take advantage of the opportunity as it comes. But like you said, is when do you get out? For me, it is understanding the politics. Zim's businesses have been determined by the politics in that market. So when you see the politics taking a certain curve, I then revisit and review my businesses and know when to exit. And I try and exit at least a little bit before the curve happens. And I've been fortunate that I've managed to do that all the time. That's all. Uh, Alan, if you could just unpack the model you're taking to Zimbabwe. And perhaps in explaining it, help us understand how you are adapting it for a market like Zimbabwe, which doesn't share the same characteristics in terms of consistency, risk profile, political uncertainty as a place like South Africa even at its worst? In South Africa, really, there are two... I mean, we've got four big divisions, but there are two real models. The one model is a bursary model, and the other is an equity model. So let's start with the bursary model. The bursary model, effectively, is a third party, generally in South Africa, a corporate, who will then buy a bursary for a business to come through one of our programs. And the program will either be 6 months, 12 months, 24, 36 months. Okay, it will be designed in accordance with, with what that corporate wants. 
We're a premium product, so they will pay a premium price for that company to come through our program. And the equity model would be where we look for these businesses uh, that fit the strategy, and then we would take an equity stake that would generally be anywhere between 30 and 50 percent, or 100 percent if we start it uh, completely or buy something out. But 30 to 50 percent with a with a, a resident entrepreneur driving it, and then our support on both of them is providing those entrepreneurs with access to infrastructure access to to back office in other words we do the books for them we do we provide them with mentors we've got around 45 50 mentors full-time broken down down into five different categories strategy finance marketing sales personal development so the entrepreneur gets a team to work with them we we train them we give them access to funding access to 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 markets access to specialists and then finally a community in with within to work so that's sort of the, the, the model that we provide. And we do that either in a bursary context or in an equity context. Now coming to the question around Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe for us is that we've, we've uh, Dr. Shingi and I have been around to many of the large corporates and, and other organizations such as DFIs, the mines, etc. And we've said to them, do you have a need to support entrepreneurs either in your supply chain or in your distribution? In other words, inbound or outbound, that they, if it's outbound in distribution, if they do well, they buy more from you. If they're better at supplying you, you would get better, more consistent uh, pricing, and so that's also good for you. So instead of taking, for example, your CSI money and giving it to uh, random charities, etc., rather make that a strategic thing and then use that in order to grow entrepreneurs. Those entrepreneurs then employ people, so it becomes a social good, and those then support their families. Those families then create more demand, and that then has a knockout effect in the economy. So instead of this, this random, I'm going to help you know, a charity and not getting an economic return for the economy, it's good to give, but make sure that that giving has an economic return. So in Zim, the, the model is very much around having these conversations with the right people who get it, and it's amazing how quickly they do get it. In the beginning, they sort of don't get it. Uh, Dr. Singh is nodding. And then they click and they go, oh, oh my gosh, where have you been all our life? Because we've been spending all this money with absolutely zero return. And in many instances, not just zero return, there's no reporting. We don't even know what's happened with our money. Dr. Singhi, what do people frequently miss about the Zimbabwean opportunity that someone like Alon has seemingly intuitively started to understand or perhaps not so intuitively perhaps through osmosis <laughs> being around folks like you um, have come to understand about the Zimbabwean opportunity what do you find is one of the biggest mental blocks to folks with the talent the time the resources the experience the IP to deploy in a place like Zimbabwe but would rather not because it just doesn't make sense the, the first one um, is that Zimbabwe has had the the knack of generating its own negative publicity, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And that always affects inbound capital because capital is timid, it's a coward. Particularly the, uh, the long-term capital is much more timid than the type that Alon and I would be more entrepreneurship kind of capital where we go in high risk high returns so the patient capital is not like that so the noise uh, at a political level has affected 
the lenses that people use to view opportunities in Zimbabwe. Yet, you only need to go through that, that lens once, and then you actually say, wow. It's almost like when Alon came, the noise was just too much. In fact, he, he, he walked in two, three months after the coup had happened, but the more he, he interacted with me and others in Zimbabwe, he realized, oh, wow. Actually, there's things that we can do very easily. Took him around and they began to feel comfortable. But now, with patient capital, that, that doesn't always have the time to be taken around and make sure, I mean, months of trying to study an opportunity. Because Zimbabwe is not the only game in town. There's other places to, where capital can go. So that's the political veil has been difficult to explain to, to capital. And also the opportunities that then lie beneath that political veil. I mean, we have amazing opportunities, but it all just gets clouded and crowded by, uh, by the political. So that's been our biggest challenge, really. And so, Alan, what did you see? There's a, there's a fantastic story about how you were invited to come through to Zimbabwe by a Zimbabwean who had studied at Fitz University, reached out to you here. Every time you talk about him, I, I've seen like a sparkle in your eye. He's a really talented operator. Shout out to you, Smanga Maldabuta. He invites you to an entrepreneurial seminar run by his church. You and Shingi meet. And then it's this rabbit hole of discovery, which leaves you thinking, I could do something here. But what did you see? What I saw was um, the human capital potential mainly. You know, the foundation is the partnership with uh, Dr. Shingi, who, uh, to be quite honest, if I didn't have a partnership that uh, was was that deep and trusting, I don't think I would be. So he was definitely a beachhead for us into, into Zim and provided the insight and the calm and the, but look at this and the perspective that you need in order to come into a new environment. And of course, I understand that he's, uh, he's, he's, he's proud of his country and that there would be some bias in that. So I have to also look at that and say, okay, there might be bias here, but Every time you, you, you uh, knocked on on that uh, metal, it had a it was it was thick and it, it, it there was substance behind it. The next thing, once we've had the foundation, the beachhead is then looking at the potential in the market and and entrepreneurship. Earlier on, I spoke about our theory of change, which is find the best, give them the best, best, and you'll produce the best. Well, in South Africa, we have to sift through one in a hundred to find the best. My, my view is that in Zim, there is a human capital treasure chest. There's incredible people that not, not only have had an incredible education, but also have had another type of education is how to be resilient. And resilience is one of the key success factors of entrepreneurs because entrepreneurship is this high frequency environment. One day you're up, one day you're down. One day, you, the, the, the corks are popping from your champagne bottle and the, the other day, you're collecting the bottles to go and recycle to get the money. It's this up and down. And Zimbabweans, like, like they live in that. And so half the battle is won because you don't have to get people to understand a high-frequency environment and how to handle that. So the two in combination, plus, I think, the turning point, which I think is bound to happen soon. You will never time it perfectly. I don't know where the bottom of the curve is, but it's soon. It's soon. If I come in after that, I'm too late. If I come in now and it's in three years, I'm too early. 
um, what the bet is is that the timing is right for us now because once we're in there you know we've got competitors listening to this they're gonna oh, oh, we should look at that by the time they set up we already established we are the 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 leading brand in in that space not to say that there aren't other incubators in zim right now there are but none of them in my opinion are doing it at the level of intensity and complexity that we are doing it dr shingi give us some numbers for this human capital treasure chest that um, Alon is describing. Give people a sense of what we're dealing with here as a a really solid foundation to build something amazing. Okay. Let me just give you some ballpark figures here. Uh, Zimbabwe is, well, plus or minus 14 million people. Of those 14 million people, about 70% are below the ages of 35. It's a very young population uh, with young talent which is very um, literate and uh, well-educated to some extent. We churn out uh, around 20,000 university students every year. And um, we don't even think that 2,000 are employed in any particular year. So you've got that whole bulk of maybe over 20,000 university graduates that are going into one way of um, um, entrepreneurship or one way of trading and, and trying to make a living. So that becomes a, an opportunity for us. As far as literacy rates are concerned, Zimbabwe is about um, the highest uh, literacy rate in, in, in Africa. It changes with Tunisia though. So 92% of Zimbabweans can read and write. And uh, we're talking about across the whole strata to 80-year-olds and 90-year-olds that can read and write. Uh, so 92%. So you don't have a problem of trying to get this potential tapped into because of that potential. The other uh, aspect is that Zimbabwe demographically as well as regionally, we find that it is in five very strong sectors. Agribusiness, uh, we got mining, we got uh, tourism, we got manufacturing, we got ICT. All these are beginning to emerge as very strong sectors but very much undercapitalized. So the statistics of the potential is very high. But it's now the environment of policy framework that is shrouding all this opportunity that is there. Yes, so a very young population to employ, astute in many ways, literate, and uh, have done their miles in terms of hard work and uh, hardships. So the, the, the resilience factor that Alon was talking about is quite there. So most of them are still at home. They even Some of them do manage to leave the country and find uh, greener pastures out. But by and large, we got that. But having said that, we probably have over 3 million Zimbabweans who are well-educated and skilled and operating big businesses across the globe. So the link between Zimbabweans in the diaspora and Zimbabweans at home, that potential is explosive to make Zimbabwe one of the better economies in Africa. And then there's much ado made about M-Pesa. People don't realize just how cashless an economy Zimbabwe is and how ready that economy is to build services on top of what is effectively a cashless society. Yeah, um, I mean, 96% of our transactions are now EFT, electronic transfers. Um, and of those, um, there's very little component that are now just cash, which is also dwindling away. Uh, what it means is that Zimbabwe is ready for anything from fintechs to uh, crypto. Uh, in, in actual fact, what we use in Zimbabwe is much more cryptocurrency than the normal currency. We, we are sitting on a, 
on an explosive potential for all the fourth industrial revolution technologies like AIs, artificial intelligence, we all big data um, because most of the population is now on that big data platform and it's for us now to, to mine that data and begin to do much more. And I see that Zimbabwe could be one of, uh, uh, one of the um, um, call centers in the whole world uh, ahead of uh, maybe even India. I mean, India has been ahead of us, but Zimbabwe with its uh, literacy rate and also the tech that just taken off, we, we're going somewhere. However, we need to ride the waves that the political environment throws at business at the moment. On the call center front, I'm sure Tunisia and Madagascar will have something to say about letting you win at that game, at the call center game. A very provocative statement made by The Economist about Corp. Alon. Apparently, you guys are the only true African incubator or accelerator, I'm not sure, one of the two. Either way, shots fired. You obviously can't get in the minds of the people who wrote that. But you must have some idea of what differentiates you and this model and perhaps its applicability in places you know, like Zimbabwe and other places like Tanzania and perhaps Zerangola where you've, you've also started to see success where you know, other incubators have gone and perhaps failed or faltered. Look, uh, uh, as you said, I can't get into the mind of what they said and I don't understand uh, exactly the uh, metrics that got them there. But I can only guess just based on the questioning and the investigation that they had done and who they had spoken to as to why they they um, might have made that statement. So I think the three inputs into into that. The one is our tenure. We've been doing this since 2000. And um, if, you, if you go back to the history of incubation, uh, in 1999 when there was a dot-com bust, um, 90% of the world's incubators were in tech and 90% of them closed down. So there was a basically a complete decimation of the incubation industry. Then they built up again in 2008 happened and that was a second shock to the system and there was a massive failure rate of incubators again of the second time. So we've lived through essentially both those shocks. Uh, in the beginning I didn't even know there was a shock you know, because I didn't even know what, that we were an incubator for the first two years. So the, so the one thing that I think is that we've we tried and tested we've in 19 years plus um, in business and it is a business. Number two is that we are for profit and I think that makes us sustainable and, and, and profitable. I said there were three, there are actually four things. So I think our profitability and the, the, the continued proof of our profitability um, over 19 years is obviously a signal around the fact that we can make this sustainable. Look, we employ currently 130 people in the incubation. That's a lot of people full-time in the incubation and it's growing all the time. So that's a lot of salaries and these are, are, are MBAs and now PhDs and everything. So there has to be some sort of model behind that that's making this profitable. Um, we have no investors in the business, so we're not getting money externally as, as we and we, we're generating our growth from, from profits. Number three is, is, um, is then the scale, is that we've achieved a high level of scale. We've got 13 incubators right now, and it's growing, um, and it's growing actually at an exponential rate. So the model is starting to now propel, and that might, might have been a signal. And then the last thing, I think, is the diversity of our products, so that, that we don't rely on any one particular market segment. I don't rely on government, and I don't rely on 
corporate and I don't rely on small business. I re uh, basically, we make our profits through all these different sectors so that it gives us way more balance and sustainability. Those are the things that I can think of that might be the reasons why that statement was made. But I love the statement. It's on our website and I will, uh, I will hold it dear um, forever and ever. I feel like your partnership with, with Alon around Raise Corp Zimbabwe, Shingi, is a... People are going to kill me for calling you Shingi. Are you serious, though? Okay, man, Andile. <laughs> Let's go for it. My, my dad, let them slaughter you for this one. My dad was director of finance at Sulu University when the, when he was endowed his doctorate, his honorary doctorate at Sulu University, and I'm calling him his first name. He's gonna kill me. No, I'm gonna send your dad uh, around you, and then uh, we'll sort it out after this uh, this interview. Goodness me. <laughs> okay, okay. So, uh, Shingi, the, this partnership to me is like a second wave of something that's come before. Um, the case study I'm referring to is you're inviting some key South African retail brands into Zimbabwe uh, in a manner that would not happen anywhere else, frankly, on the continent, or frankly, even the world, right? So I'm going to ask you to list off some of the brands that you brought in and actually, I suppose you were a custodian of. You were their entree to the Zimbabwean experience. You were very successful with them and then very famously timed an exit that led you into the next thing and the next thing. And, and so in telling that story, I'd like you to sort of reflect as you did on stage about how this Raise Corp partnership might be the second wave of a, of a similar approach to inviting outsiders to do business in Zimbabwe. This was born out of my years in hospitality where I ran some, some very um, exciting brands, Holiday Inn, Crown Plaza, and Best Western as well. And, and I, I didn't say this at the stage though, but just to let you know that um, with an entrepreneur in Ghana, we built the first Holiday Inn. He, he put in the money for the building, we brought in the brand, the Holiday Inn. And surprise, surprise, guess who got a call from, uh, from Washington uh, when Barack Obama was going to visit Africa or rather Sub-Saharan Africa for the first time? It's us because he was going to use the Holiday Inn and uh, that's where he stayed. So we hosted Barack Obama in 2009 when he visited um, uh, Ghana and Sub-Saharan Africa for the first time. So, so that's probably the, the level of handling brands that I had got into uh, at an African, and at that time, we were the largest franchisee for the IHG Group, which is the Intercontinental Hotels Group. Uh, we were running their Holiday Inns and the Crown Plaza on the African continent because the South African franchisee had come out. So we're the only ones left now on the continent. So running brands was, was always at the back of my mind as a way of unlocking value, but also on bringing in big investment into a destination because capital follows, to some extent, some big brands as well. So-and-so is there, so-and-so, there is Virgin there, there is Holiday Inn there, there is Crown Plaza there, there's all these sort of hotels or airlines even uh, are coming into a particular destination. So my desire was to bring in uh, a different perspective to the Zimbabwean equation by bringing in renowned brands. So we had the Holiday Inn there in the Crown Plaza. Now I decided I'll bring in the food franchises. But it is not common that you can run five food franchises under one umbrella in a radius of less than five kilometers. It's unheard of, it has never happened. So we did it. In fact, it was 20 meters apart, these brands, in one food court. 
Um, so we brought in the Ocean Basket, News Cafe, Mug and Bean, uh, Simply Asia, and Smooch, which is the frozen yogurt, in a space of about 18 months. And they were very supportive to that. And I must say, I hasten to say that for Ocean Basket and News Cafe, in the first six months of operation, we're in the top five best stores in terms of turnover across all their, uh, their stores uh, in South Africa and across Africa where they're operating. And at some point, we're number three for News Cafe. Uh, turnover base. This is in US dollars, by the way, not even in Zim dollars. At that time, we were operating in, Zim, in US dollars. So the desire was to change the, the perception of Zim. The desire was to bring a better offering for better quality and products for Zim, which are world-renowned, regionally renowned, and that people can attest to their quality and their standards. It is the same way that I'm doing with Rayscope, which is a brand. Uh, which has been recognized in the whole of Africa, like Alon said, and uh, make sure that we make it a big brand in Zimbabwe as well. And it is giving value to Zimbabweans and making sure that it takes off. Now, I, uh, Alon doesn't probably internalize this as much as I do. Racecorp Zimbabwe will become the flagship of Racecorp uh, for the whole of Africa. And if we have to go to the rest of the world, Zimbabwe will be their biggest market and the biggest test case. I don't know, Alan. I wouldn't bet against that. Well, uh, I, w- I would if I'm right. I re- wouldn't if I'm wrong. <laughs> and I wouldn't bet against Shingi uh, or Dr. Munyeza to you. <laughs> Dr. Munyeza, see, he put me in my place. Oh, my word. <laughs> oh, my word. Look at you guys. Now you're going to sort me out. Okay. I'm sorry, Dad. Um, they made me do it. But let's talk about the timing aspect because um, your timing around seeing what was coming and deciding it was time to to sell off to what is essentially Zimbabwe's largest retail play in score. How this is not in an MBA textbook yet, I don't know. Oh, there's a lot of things I would like to put in an MBA text. Uh, that's why Alon comes in this season of my life. He'll probably help me to package some of this stuff for our entrepreneurs to see how to, to forecast and see the markets. The exit strategy was actually beginning about 2016 when, uh, when there was the introduction of the bond in Zimbabwe, which was a currency, which was not a currency. Um, An interim currency, if you will. Yeah. So when that came in, I realized that it was going to kick out the good currency because we're in a multi-currency system. And I was concerned that it would be difficult for, for me to, to bring about the, the excellence in the brands if I wasn't an exporter because this was not an exporting uh, franchise. Um, we're going to get local currency anyway. So my decision to, uh, to discuss a deal with INSCO was timely because they also needed dining restaurants with that sort of context and branding to match their fast food restaurants that they had, which is the biggest fast food business in the whole country. So they needed that niche that I had created. Uh, and so it was a meeting of mine, but they were also, in their other businesses, they are also exporters. So they didn't worry too much about making sure that the correct ingredients are there, the royalties are being paid because they had access to foreign currency. And that, that was the deal. But also they had loved the way I had operated the businesses. Uh, they'd been operated at, at the best they could be in a market like ours. I mean, to even reward that, I had to speak to my franchisors, uh, Ocean Basket and Mug and Bean. And they said, look, 
if you're exiting Aruzem, we want to offer you a play in South Africa. So I opened um, a Magan Bean in Kalam in South Africa and an Ocean Basket in, uh, in Colonade in Pretoria as a result of how I had run the businesses in Zim. And basically it was to showcase Zim, but also the exit was to understand that the, the economy and the politics were taking a different turn and I needed to exit. And now I'm into this year for the longest haul I could ever be. I think uh, for the rest of my life, I'd like to do this because as a serial, like you put it, as a serial entrepreneur, at least I can see uh, small businesses rise and, and uh, accelerated, scaled, and we leave them off. And that way, I think it will satisfy my serial nature to see uh, businesses come and go. Only a few more questions. I want to ask you, Alon, about your approach, the lens you use to determining what to do and what to leave alone. We had a conversation earlier in the week where I totally misunderstood what appeared to me as this apparent willingness to just pursue commercial opportunity on the merits of your ability to convert it, right? You clearly have an approach that I think is worth sharing that may not be for everyone clearly but certainly works for you before i talk about that strategy i just want to be very clear that it doesn't mean i'm not opportunistic because sometimes an opportunity presents and if i can leverage the word is leverage if i can leverage that opportunity through my resources through my network through the business that i have and it's not strategic i will generally if if it's sweet enough i will ju jump to it um but that is very rare and, and I, I really need to be convinced that I can really monetize that, that opportunity rather quickly, otherwise I won't do it. And as I've got older, I've become more and more disciplined as to what I determine as opportunity and what I don't. Now let's come back to the strategy. So for me, I'm very much a, about a strategy first kind of guy and what's the strategy, what do I want to achieve, what's the vision, what's the strategy to get there, how do I get there? Right. So what do I want and how do I get there? And that to me is it's a, a two-dimensional puzzle. And, and in, in many instances, a three-dimensional puzzle where there are certain pieces of the puzzle that I need in order to achieve that vision. And in each piece of the puzzle, there is a leverage point with the other pieces of the puzzle. So what you are looking at as an outsider might seem like quite a... Uh, disjointed uh, set of businesses but for me it's very clear so let me give you an example of that uh, I own a substantial st stake in a business called Ruby Blue which is a funeral home policy management software business by the way 100% of Zimbabwe's funeral homes run on our software just by the way right so I'm already in Zim okay so we've got 7.2 million policies 35 million lives 820 funeral homes all right so that's a funeral home policy management software business number one number two is a business that does co-working space and flexible workspace a business called the business exchange we've got four in south africa one in mauritius okay i'll give you a third one which is an accounting business called gas accounting right Right. So these seem like three very disparate businesses, but they're not. They're all exactly the same business. 820 funeral homes, 820 small businesses. 
the TBE has got over 900 small businesses in it. 900 small businesses. Racecorp, ourselves, we incubate 500 and have 13,000 through us, right? So, small businesses. So, when we set up gas accounting, guess who does the bookkeeping? When, when George, who is the entrepreneur, he joins Racecorp, guess what, how quickly he becomes not just break even, but profitable because he eats out of the ecosystem. So, this is an ecosystem play. So, you at one level are looking, one's in tech. One's in accounting, a service, one's in, 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 in property. These are still very disparate. To me, there's another game going on. And that's happening in a three-dimensional way. So when opportunities present, I either say, oh, where does this fit in? And I'm quite open to see, well, maybe I'm wrong and it can't fit here. And then in other instances, I deliberately go out and look for these particular types of businesses to plug holes in, 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 the, in the full strategy. There's another business you referenced, which actually, again, doesn't quite add up to your sort of B2B preference in businesses you invest in directly or make equity plays in. But then I thought that was a really smart way you showed or demonstrated how even when you break your own rules, you're playing by the strategy. So, so we're talking about one of our investments in EdTech business. It's an online school called Advantage Learn, 4,600 kids. But I've also owned a school. Right. So the broader strategy is around the longer, longer play. I'm a long-term thinker and it's around the school and we put entrepreneurship into the school. So education is part of the play. But when you go online now, these guys have built an incredible platform to deliver education digitally. And that is, can be applied to a different market and I can use that tech in a different, in a different environment. So sometimes it's, all, it's a little bit lateral in the way that that's why it's three-dimensional in terms of how these pieces fit. But they always fit in, in a way that is either fortuitous or by design, but mostly by design, I, I think. Um, but yet again, when I come to thinking about my relationship with uh, Dr. Munieza, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, Shingi to you, but uh, Dr. Munez to me. <laughs> when I think about that, um, um, that was that was a, a fortuitous for me because had I not been in Zim on that day and, and had I not been speaking or, or Shingi, uh, are you feeling better now? Shingi had not been speaking on that day and maybe he was speaking on that day but at a different time and maybe we didn't sit next to each other afterward. If those things didn't happen, then we wouldn't be in Zimbabwe. So this entrepreneurship journey is also about those things and that I think gives it the rich tapestry and enjoyment uh, on, on the ride because it's the things that you can't predict. Uh, or my partner always says to me, like, uh, you, know, you know, what's your week like? I said, I can't wait for those emails. I said, which emails? I said, I don't know, but I'm going to get an email, which is an opportunity this week, and I can't wait for it. And they always arrive randomly out of nowhere, and then they make you think. But then I applied back into the, the strategy, the broader strategy. Yeah, and incidentally, you both have um, education investments in common as well. I mean, it really is quite uncanny. I've, I've never had you both in the same space, but... As you spoke on stage and you pointed to all the sort of parallels in values, in approach, um, and I shouldn't say in, in approach because clearly your approaches differ, but like the, 
I suppose in the way it matters most, you guys are so the same, even in your thinking around value and delayed gratification and what to do next. It really is uncanny that you, you've been geographic neighbors for so long and only in business now. But there's an incredible question that I, I'd like us to sort of wind down with. You know, one of the entrepreneurs sitting in the audience earlier asked you, a Zimbabwean woman, if I recall, I think she's in manufacturing here in South Africa, would love to make a play in Zimbabwe, be part of what's going on there. She was clearly inspired by a lot of the rhetoric you were sharing. And then she asked this very pointed question, probably because you're a, an advisor at the highest level <laughs> in, our, in our country's politics, you advise our president, uh, President Nangakwa. And so her question was kind of, do you guys take on board what we need and, and how we think you can serve us in, in making Zimbabwe a success? And, and I think she was referring to private sector, um, no doubt diasporans who could bring to bear the skills and the resources to make Zimbabwe great and and so she put this question to you and I'd like you to to share as much as you can remember of what was really I think a masterclass in in pragmatism around thinking about Zim and approaching that or entering that market. Zim has been 10 MBAs for as long as I can, every year it's a new MBA. But it's a, it's a typical VUCA economy, you know, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and uh, ambiguity. You know, in that, imagine that is happening not, not like every year, but that's happening every month, even sometimes every day. So in order to navigate such an environment, you've got to have to focus on certain values or approaches that help and uh, for me i have i articulated on three but they end up being four but let me just say the one is you need to get an intervention uh, around you as a business person um, where you connect with political players where you connect with civic players where you connect with the general public where you connect with uh, different stakeholders the international community for me, to hook up with Alon in a very in a VUCA environment, which he, he just wants to go there and do his thing and comes back to South Africa. But he gets there and he's stuck with me and I'm telling him a story about what Rayscop can do. And all of a sudden, I tell him things that he can verify because these are no longer things that... This is not a sales pitch. This is not like a marketing pitch. It's not a a high-gloss kind of conversation I'm having with him. He's a real pragmatic, very down-to-earth, realistic, given facts and real figures on the ground. So uh, that uh, aspect of bringing confidence means that you have to engage at all levels. For me, I engage at an international level in the diplomatic community to understand the thinking, the understanding of how they're engaging Zimbabwe. Uh, at the government level, being an advisor of the president is uh, probably 10% of my time. I actually don't sit every day thinking, what should I tell him? No, I don't. We meet so often, we, we pass advisory um, uh, papers to him. Um, it's up to them. We're not an implementing army of government, uh, arm, arm of government, so it's up to them. They, they are the principal. But for me, it is an important um, place to be to understand how this wheel is turning. And when I engage with people like yourselves, with Alon and others, I am not telling them things I just wish or that I have 
calculated. These things are verified. And that this thing is going to end up like that. If, if we continue this way, it's going to... So if you're in business, you better position yourself this way. And uh, also, the, the normal community... I'm a pastor. So I'm a township pastor, for that matter. So I understand the struggle, the hassle that is happening in the township like Mbare. Um, I understand the hassle that is happening in the rural areas like Murewa, like Nyanga. So I've been there, I go there so often just to be with a common person and understand what this whole ecosystem is doing to the common man. And But I interact with businesses as well, uh, business leaders at various levels. So bringing that confidence means that you've got to have your hands very clearly on all the pulses that are happening in that economy. So the next thing is competence. One of the things is that engaging in Zimbabwe is that there's been a flight of quality or flight to quality, okay, <laughs> both flight of quality and flight to quality. Skills have left Zimbabwe and also skills have left the public sector. So a lot of people are, are clamoring on an expectation of how government should run, but some of the skills are not there anymore. So we expect things to move from point A to point B. With all the goodwill in the world, the person who's doing it actually is trying the best they can. They just can't. They've not been mentored. They might be educated, but they have not got the skill to move this needle from A to B. So there is need to infuse the lack of competence with outside competence, bringing in the necessary uh, guide, which is what we use in Rayscope, necessary guiding to say, look, this is, you can't do this. Let's do it this way. Now, a lot of people in Zimbabwe run away from that responsibility. And they think that because of the toxicity and the polarity that is in the country because due to our politics, they run away from being involved in those structures and expect the same people who are left there who are incompetent to actually make the right decision for them. And I find that an oxymoron, actually, because I'm saying you have left. You've got the better skill. Your junior is now running the show. You expect them to run the show better than you. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it, it just doesn't make sense. So the competence factor is what is really uh, uh, puzzling for most people to understand that. And it's also confused with the high literacy rate. So having a high literacy rate market does not mean that we've got a high skilled rate market. This is where RaceCorp comes in. Because we want to skill the people in entrepreneurship so that they understand, they can, they can articulate, they can run these businesses better and successfully as well. So the, the literacy rate has been confused. So you'll have lots of people who got degrees, diplomas, uh, and masters and doctorates in Zimbabwe, but they don't have the same skill to drive the structures and to lead the country to where it should be. So we have a deficit there. And much of our skill has also left the country into the diaspora where they're running big organizations, corporates and running communities. And so again, it is how do we bring in that diaspora into play? And to, to do that, you've got to have a critical mass in situ to attract it because talent must attract talent. But if it doesn't know each other, then we are doomed. So the, that's so competence. The next one is consistency. So we've had a policy problem in Zimbabwe because of hyperinflation, our politics. So 
so policy changes the way you would change underwear sometimes because it is trying to manage a changing environment but the communication around it has not been good so when policy changes like that you need to roll in with the punches but you need a specific competence to get everybody to roll in with the punches you know how it is when you're riding a motorbike and there are two of you and if, you, if the other guy just remains on the other side, you're going to roll over. So you need the skill to say, look, we are now, we are now turning and we are turning at a fast speed. So turn with me uh, on this so that there is no um, you know, disruption due to that policy shift because you're rolling together or you're turning together. The final thing is the communication. The communication has been bad. Uh, in our country to communicate policy, communicate what our real values, objectives, vision is because of how our politics have played out. So in order to get to understand this, you've got to get involved because you don't always get the same information. For example, if you open the, the business newspapers in South Africa, you actually are very informed almost accurately on a decision you might need to make. In Zimbabwe, there is much more speculation, there's much more bitterness, anger. The, everything is, the lens there is anger um, and, and almost sometimes toxicity. So you don't get the facts right. So unless you are in it to understand that this is a lie, this is just, uh, this is just uh, tabloid stuff that has been peddled at this level and it's not factual. You find there's less facts, there's less uh, of uh, truth that is there because people are just stating how they feel rather than what is on the ground. So the communication piece then comes in. So yeah, Zimbabwe is, a, is, a, is an MBA every year for, for anybody who stays that long in a market running a business. And I really love how you told us straight up that Marketing 101, go learn your audience, like sit in a corner and watch people shop like you did before you invited all the brands, uh, you know, the retail brands from South Africa or literally make the friends spend a month at home, you know, instead of the, the sort of seven to ten days most of us diasporans average year to year and then expect when we arrive to be embraced with open arms and... I think there's a humility required as well of of those of us who've had the the privilege of of leaving Zimbabwe, acquiring skills and experience, and, and thinking that that somehow sh should guarantee us a place at the table in a place like Zimbabwe. I, I suppose there's there's that as well. I've definitely seen it in my circles, and I and I, I, I try to remind myself as often as I can because it, it is tempting to start to to think, you know, to think otherwise. So, my last question for you both. Um, Think of yourselves at 20 years old, right? Do you have the picture yet? So Shingi at 20, Alon at 20. Okay. What advice would you give to the 20-year-old version of yourself starting out today in 2019? Um, what advice would you give to the 20-year-old version of yourself starting out today? Alon? All right. So let's go for the business. It always takes longer than you think. You always need more money than you think. Relationships are way more important than you think. Arrogance and confidence are not the same thing. Listen, listen, listen. And write down everything that you, you are learning. Sit at the feet of, of the wise more. 
At uh, 23, I, I, I did. I had that privilege, but I wish I had done even more. And be more aggressive. The one thing I regret most is that I have not been as aggressive as I should have um, when opportunities presented. And the last thing is um, try to be kinder more often. Um, I think I, I could have been kinder. I, I, I look back and I... Yeah, I think maybe that is the f that's a youth thing. Um, kind on me, kind on others. And I think the last piece, perhaps, is is the concept of right. You're right or you're wrong. I think that's the wrong. Um, see how the, the the that's oxymoron there. That's the wrong way to to look at it. There's there's degrees that life is far more nuanced than right and wrong. It's um, it's degrees and. Um, we are very often conditioned in a binary mindset and uh, that restricts a huge amount of opportunity when, when those are your two options. There's a bit of right and a bit of wrong and right and wrong at the same time. I'm not so sure who the pastor is now because <laughs> there's, like, there's pastoral vibes going on. He's my pastor. <laughs> um, for me... Um, totally agree this is the the big part that Alon and I share we say we share very common values maybe um, maybe if we had met at 20 years we wouldn't share the same values uh, but I think life happens and we find ourselves almost on the same kind of boat with our values I, I would start off by saying that always start where you are don't wish to start in the States or to start in another country. Start where you are um, and start with whoever you're with and start um, with whatever you've got. Don't, don't wait for the moment that you've got lots of money. Uh, don't wait for meeting uh, a Shingi or an Alon or an Andile so that uh, the, your fortunes will turn. They must meet you whilst you're on a journey already. Um, so, so that is about starting um, because at 20 you've just come out of high school and you're trying to figure out. So start where you are and start with whoever you're with. Don't wish for some glamorous person. It could be your aunt, it could be your brother, it could be your mother, it could be your, it could be your sister, it could be, it could be a friend from school, just play. And you see all these um, entrepreneurs that have risen in our generation, Steve Jobs, uh, you know, um, uh, Bill Gates and them, they actually started with friends in the garage, and, you know, start where you are and don't wait for some big guy to come through and rescue you. Um, and um, and uh, start with whatever you have. Whether you've got $10 or $10,000, start with what you have. Uh, the skill and the, and, the, and, the, and the talents that you have. But once you've moved on from there, uh, I think one of the things that I would like to have known is that don't be afraid to stand out. We come from a culture background that tells you if you stand out, you're going to get broken, you're going to get wounded, you're going to get... So please, just, just blend in. <laughs> just keep blending in. Now, no one has changed the world by blending in. Not one person. All the people who have transformed their generations didn't blend in. They stood out. So don't be afraid to, to stand out. 
even if you're going to fail. Just don't be, because the, the thing is that you're afraid to fail. But all the failures I know in life, all the su most successful people are, are big failures. <laughs> you, you look down and you see how much they, I mean, Alon and I laugh because of what he failed in and what I failed in. And, you know, it's, don't be afraid to stand out. And also, take it as a marathon. Whatever you're doing is not a sprint journey. We live in a generation where everything is instant this, instant that. And so you think that your life is going to be an instant something. But it, it take a marathon, take a long-term view, uh, so that when you stumble, when you fail, you just know that it's a steeple chase. <laughs> it's, a, it's a marathon that you're running, and it's going to have water, it's going to have this, it's going to, and, and, but it's a long journey ahead. And so take enough water at any given time and keep going. Uh, and that every failure along that marathon, every drop, is not a failure, actually. You become a failure bec because you've, you've actually said you, you have failed. But every mistake or failure is actually a place for learning. So take it and, s like for me, I just say, so what did I learn? So it's another degree in my pocket which I didn't have to really go to school for but I paid lots of money or lots of pain with it so every mistake or what you fail in is a place for learning rather than so in that marathon understand that but um, when when you've done all this I would have wanted to be told at that age that um, eventually it's who you are becoming rather than what you are or what you want to be. Uh, it's not the material things. Uh, eventually, what matters most in your life is the person you're becoming. Uh, you go full circle. You will, you'll always lose money and you'll always earn money. And, and, and hopefully, in your journey, you'll make more than you lose. But once you've done that equation, actually, you realize that losing money and earning money is just like breathing in and breathing out. But the person that you're becoming is not about the oxygen you're bringing, breathing. It is the values. That's why we tend to now more focus on what the impact. Uh, my significance is now more on people, the impact I'm making on people rather than the money I'm making. So I wish that somebody told me 20 years ago it's all about people rather than the money you're going to make. Money you will make and money you will lose. But it's a marathon and eventually try and change at least one life. If not a life, a family. If not a family, a community. If not a community, a nation. If not a nation, a generation. Pastor Shingi Munyeza. Pastor Alan Reyes. <laughs> rabbi. Rabbi, rabbi. He's rabbi. 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 Oh, man. Dr. Shingi Munyeza. Mr. Alan Reyes. It has been an extraordinary privilege having you on the African Tech Roundup. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm totally biased when I say I hope that Raise Corp Zimbabwe will be a resounding success. I fully expect it to be. fully expect this to be a landmark audio piece documenting how we talked about it before it became. And um, no pressure, guys. Zimbabwe can't lose in my view, so... <laughs> I wish you all the best is my point. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andele, and all the best for the great work you're doing. Thank you very much.
Okay, you go about an hour. <laughs> 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 <laughs>